receiving profound help from all of the Buddhas and ancestors. It's in that chant. I was having conversations with people this morning and over the last few weeks about trust. About trusting in Sangha and how long it takes to trust the practice, Sangha. And when we come in, even sometimes, at least for me, you might be different, but I certainly didn't trust the Sangha or the practice when I started. I had a very superficial notion of trust. But when, but deep down, no way. I did everything I was told because there was some part of me that was terrified I was going to be tossed out on my ear. And a lot of that had to do with class, and a lot of that, had, there were many, many reasons. But um, I just think it's important at any level, at any point in our practice. Dogen says to to confess our lack of faith. Never condemn our lack of faith. Never compare our lack of faith to some projection of somebody else's faith. But to just confess our lack of faith. And sometimes for very good reasons. So I was um, teasing out this difference between when we come into a Sangha, in this case especially a Zen Sangha, because in Zen we have all of these things we do. Things line up certain ways, we bow certain ways, we do all these things. And the uncomfortableness of that regardless you know, so there's this one aspect of being uncomfortable because a spiritual path needs to be uncomfortable. A spiritual path, if it's worth anything, is going up against our conditioning. It's going up against our unconscious conditioning, which means there's something set in place that is going to challenge that. And so we're probably not going to like it a lot of the time. So there's that part of it. And then there's the part of it that, um, there's the part of practice that is not trusting of, and this is so much to tease out and understand and take so much time. But to tease out the part of us that simply is not trusting of community, or not trusting of a tradition, or not trusting of particular communities, or not trusting of communities that don't feel like the communities we come from, or maybe the communities we come from weren't particularly trustworthy, so forget about all community. 
and what it is to step into that. And then we have, and maybe we hear people speak in certain ways and we feel like we have to speak in those ways and we don't. <clears throat> and then there's the overlay of all of the historic violence of our world and country that makes communities coming together both difficult and um, potentially harmful if we're not conscious. So all of this is happening, which makes every person who comes into this room profoundly courageous. Even if you have no sense of yourself as that. In fact, I would make the assertion that if you have a sense of yourself as fearful, you're all the more courageous. So what then is it to come together in a spiritual path where we're coming from so many different places? In a way, every single person is coming from a profoundly different place. We're all made up of all of these different contexts and associations, and we are satisfied in one place. One aspect of us is satisfied in one place but not in another. But then that one place where that one aspect is satisfied, another part of us is left out. And so we go somewhere else for that. And so the, the community itself is disappointing all the time. Disappointing if we have the sense that um, a community is going to meet all the needs of this one. Which makes then me um, consider what are we doing? What are we doing consciously engaging in these sets of relationships that are going to be frustrating they're going to be joyful, too. They're going to be frustrating and disappointing. Um, sometimes we'll feel hurt. Sometimes we'll have been harmed. And, that, and distinguishing between when there's hurt and when there's harm. When there's hurt because something is not the way I'm conditioned and it feels painful, versus somebody did something either intentional or unconsciously harmful. And how do we make sense out of that? What do we do? We've talked about this before, this idea of returning, but I, I always return to this idea of returning, which is cultivating a space where we actually can give voice to that disappointment, to that frustration, to that hurt, to that harm. 
because I, 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 this is my experience and I really believe this, I don't think we can clarify it by ourselves. I think we have to clarify it with each other. And the people who are, um, have not had to customarily do the work of clarifying those relationships need to pitch in. and do that work. And the people who have done so much of that work need to be able to give, there needs to be some space for some rest. But even negotiating that and understanding it is such a level of communication. And to move into that is such a level of trust And it is highly unlikely that we come here with that level of trust in the beginning. We may tell ourselves a story of trust, but I think many of us have had the experience, you get to that point in your practice and that story starts to fail and you begin to realize how scary it is to really be um, a part of a community that is trying to wake up to our conditioning. And what has to be renounced? It's also in the chant that we have to renounce. What has to be renounced? That our conditioning has to be renounced. Now, renounced doesn't mean um, cast away destroyed, tossed aside, the way we've been conditioned in our lives. It doesn't mean it's all terrible and we need to destroy it. It just means that our relationship to it shifts in the sense that it is, not, it is no longer an absolute truth that I'm then putting on everybody else. If they have a different experience or truth, it's because they're wrong, because I have the right one. That impulse, which is such a human, pervasive human impulse, that we just put that into question and, um, and step back and let other truths in which may compromise every idea we have about ourselves. Those other truths may disrupt and compromise who we think we are. And can we live in that space of real dialogue where we cannot rest in this idea of who I am? That is not that is no longer a resting point. And that somehow we find a way to rest in all of these views that are unfolding and happening. And all of these disappointments and all of these fears. Because in that, um, in all of those fears, which at first we respond to with fear. 
I don't want to be around a bunch of disappointments and fears. That's scary. Doesn't need to be. But that is the first thing that usually tends to arise, and so we figure out ways not to do that. But to be in that space is an opportunity for a kind of intimacy that is not our usual way of life. I find myself in those spaces, and sometimes I want to bite, or I want to defend, or I want to do something that is not particularly useful. And so then there's this training of Zazen, this training of meditation, where we are training the mind and body. And I want to lean heavily into the body part of that. But training the body to be able to be in that kind of complexity. That all of these things are arising, and so we're training the body to be able to be with that. And it will have, what will, what will arise will also be lots of no, I don't want to do that. Or maybe yes, I want to move into it and some people have inclinations that are very addicted to, to those kinds of spaces. We may lean this way or we may lean that way too far. But that those can come up too. And um, there can be space for it. And if there's space for it, then we can listen. We can actually listen. There can be all of this energy and all of these competing views and all of these ideas and all of this stuff happening that we're not accustomed to that makes us um, nervous, that makes us want to leave. And we can listen to what's being communicated to us. And sometimes we'll say, okay, that's too much pain. I need to respectfully decline at this point. And that is a way of listening. That is not a failure. There's a way of listening. Sometimes it's too much. And we need to go into spaces where we can um, maybe not have to deal with that for a little while. And then come back into spaces where we are. And we all have our own... This isn't... Zen practice is not going to... Um, it's just simply not going to satisfy everything. We are complex people with, with very complicated lives, and unless you are somebody, which hopefully not everyone here is, that has really decided this is going to be the thing they do and center it above all else, those people may try to make Zen everything. But even in that case, I think, be careful. But we find this nourishment... We're a conversation, right? Each one of us is a conversation. It's not just that we're in conversation. What we are is a conversation. We're a conversation between all different kinds of conditioning, trying to talk its way into wise ways of being in the world. 
And if you watch yourself, you're doing this, right? We walk around having these, we walk around being a conversation with ourselves all the time. And we agree with some parts of the conversation and then other parts we really don't like. And so to let all those voices be heard and to be just with all those voices. Because if we can be just with all those voices, then we can have the space to be just with voices that maybe aren't our typical voices, aren't voices that we're used to hearing. And so if we're not recoiling from the internal voices that threaten us, and we can be just with those voices, then we can begin to be able to be just and not recoil from voices that are not the ones that we're used to hearing. Otherwise, <laughs> what tends to happen is we hear a voice we're not used to hearing, and there's a voice that comes up in us that is one of the voices we don't want to hear, and we recoil from that voice that's not ours because we're actually recoiling from the voice that is. There's an internal voice that comes up and says, oh no, this is too much, you should be afraid, or this is not something, and then we don't want to include that voice. We don't want to include a voice of fear as a part of who we are, or a voice of self-hatred. We want to take the voices of self-hatred and fear and those things and just stick them in a really thick, walled closet and become something else. But in doing that, we know, I think most of us know they're just doing, they're doing it anyway. They're happening anyway. And they're affecting how we respond to the other voices in the community. And so we let them out of the closet and we bring compassion and love to them. And then we start building the capacity to let voices arise that make us really, really uncomfortable. And we can open up to many voices that make us really uncomfortable. So that we can actually become, we might say, awake. We might say upright or just. Eventually, if we can allow all of the perspectives to arise without grasping, without wanting to own it, dominate it, destroy it, then we can be um, loving and compassionate in the world. And we can do that in little bits even before that. But this is the Bodhisattva, this is our Bodhisattva vow to live for the liberation of all beings. Why it's so deeply interconnected with our own practice of looking at our own minds and hearts. Because if this is not, if we're not able to have this, um, and the trust, to go back to the trust, the trust doesn't come before the practice. If you're waiting to trust to start practicing, you're going to be waiting. The trust comes with the experience of the practice. The faith comes, and I make a distinction between the two, because the faith is when you just know. 
when you know in your bones that this practice, that the practice of looking at the mind and heart, looking at the that, it, that looking at the moral effects, to talk in the way the Buddha talked, is that looking at the karmic effects of our life, the effects of our moral behavior, the effects of who we are in the world on other people and on ourselves, that looking at that and realizing the nature of reality are exactly the same thing. That if we are completely and totally interdependent, if we are nothing but relationship, if we are nothing but a conversation happening, if everything about us is related, and we don't know it, we're acting from separation, then we're creating, we're tearing the fabric of the cosmos, we're tearing the fabric of reality, and the way we do that as people is through behavior through thought, through speech, through actions. This is how we tear the wholeness of things. And so if we're going to realize the nature of um, the interconnected nature of reality, which is kind of worth realizing because then we can relax, we can real if we're going to realize that, we are only going to realize it by understanding how we don't see it how we don't understand it, how we're not realizing it, how we're acting in ways that are not coming from that understanding, which means that we're paying attention to ourselves as moral beings, as ethical beings, as beings able to hold complexity and listen. Can we be complexity and listen? Can we be complexity, listen, and respond? without carving up the complexity. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. And for me, I don't think that that means that it's not a practice of I'm going to let myself be the complexity. I'm going to listen to the complexity. And when I see moral harm, I'm just going to remember it's complex. And then it stops. That is not in any way what the Buddha has asked us to do. There's, there's the interconnected causal complexity of life. There's this wholeness. This is what we are. Sometimes we do not act in alignment with that, understanding with that, and actually what our job is at that point is to name it. It's to name it in ourselves and it's to name it in the world. We do not, and the way I was talking about this last week, you know, this notion of um, using just in both expressions of both meanings of the word. If we are just relationship, we are both just relationship, that's all we are, and we are in just relationship with each other. And those two things are the same thing. If we realize that we are just relationship fully and completely, then we will be in just relationship with each other. We will be in a relationship that is a relationship of justice.
that is in a relationship of uprightness and care and fairness and equity. We will be in that relationship with each other if we understand there is nothing outside of this relationship. There is no better person outside of the relationship or less good person outside of the relationship. There is the conditioned relationship and that's what there is. So are we going to collectively take responsibility for those conditioned relationships? And are those of us who are in the habit of not taking responsibility for them going to step up? And so that is, um, in doing that, if we can do that together, and it's to step up is scary. To be the one always stepping up is scary. But if we can do that together, then we can actually start to experience a collective practice that we can begin to trust. But if we don't understand that just relationship as presence and just relationship as moral relationship with each other. If we don't understand that those are the same thing, that we're not here just to discover the nature of reality so we can be awesome, but we're here to discover the nature of reality so that we can be in deep, connected, moral relationship with each other. Once we understand, and that our discovering that deep moral relationship with each other, we are on our way to liberation because through it we will realize the wholeness of reality. And that will free us from the dukkha, the suffering of believing we're separate. The path is the same path. And if we can do that together, then we can begin to trust the space because this is extremely hard to do without Sangha. It is very hard to do without a community that is doing it together. I don't know how to do it without a community because I don't know what it would be to be a human without a human community. We would probably die quickly. So to do this in community is not all that um, shocking. It's what we do. It's what humans do. It's just that this kind of community is there's more at stake because this kind of conversation and trust is so deeply intimate that the stakes go way up. And the stakes do go way up. But they only, the stakes only go way up because we didn't see how high the stakes were already. The stakes were always this high. The stakes were always life and death. The stakes were always happiness and misery. The stakes were always this. And we just had fabulous ways of ignoring it. So um, I'll end with this. So this Zen practice, it's not about Dharma talks. It's not about even the forms that we do. Although all of those things, it's not even, I'm looking for lightning, it's not even about Zazen. 
it is about all of these things together being one path of cultivating a kind of intimacy that is required for our collective healing, clarity, and liberation. We need some discipline to do that. That is not something that is just... Um, unless, unless you're somebody who, who, who grew up in a really wonderful family that disciplined you in this way, and I'm, I mean discipline in the very productive, loving way, not in the punishment way. We need, a, we need a path that mirrors to us the ways we're not able to do this. Most of us probably have grown up in the more disciplined punishment side. So the idea of a, um, or some of us, I don't know if most, I don't know, but um, so the idea of a path of discipline, we're not particularly interested. And yet, and yet, how are we going to know what conditioning is leading us toward liberation and what isn't? If we don't put ourselves in a situation that um, forces us to look, that insists that we look, I would, um, as we come, if you've been in this for a, a while, if you're just coming in the door, it takes a long time to trust it. It takes a long time to trust it, and we will disappoint one another. And I hope for all of us that we will as open-heartedly as possible, and as wholeheartedly as possible, return to each other to have a discussion about that disappointment. Because the intimacy is going to be in that discussion, and those discussions are really hard and really scary. And that is where the intimacy, that is where the connection is. That is where the actual connection is. That isn't a kind of a an imitation of connection, a shallow harmony. The real, the deep harmony is going right through recognizing the harm. The, harm, the, the, the harmony that binds is, the, is going through the harm and recognizing the harm and having that conversation and being willing to open to it and being willing to heal because to cause a wound takes a second and to heal it takes a long time. And the eyes that see wounds are not the eyes that see healing. Lots of people can spot wounds. But knowing how to heal wounds is a whole different thing. And that takes all of us. I think of myself in my 20s, right? I could spot the wounds of society. You know, I, I could see a lot of them. But I, other than getting really angry and righteous, I didn't know much about what it took to heal. I didn't actually... Because that process is so, um, as you know, 
you know, that process is about, is about this showing up in this constant, it's not turnkey, there's no key to turn, right? But when I was young, I was looking for the key to turn. There's been all these wounds, come on, get it right. You know, we need to fix this. And there was a lot of outrage, and the outrage was appropriate, but to a degree, but the thing about outrage is, it is not a path to healing. It is a clarity about the wound. And it's an important clarity about the wound. It's important. But it gets confused. It gets treated as if it's somehow a path to healing, and it's just not. It doesn't get us there. So there's more that has to happen. So in that sense, the eyes that can clearly see the wound, there's a lot of us, there are a lot of people who can see the wounds. There are a lot less people who can even see much less take part in the healing. And so I think there's, there's um, to begin to emphasize the cultivation of eyes that see the healing <laughs> is really important and really hard. What's becoming clearer and clearer and has taken me a very long time to even learn to the modest degree I've learned it is that healing has to happen in conversation. It has to happen in conversation. And if we're trying to get people to do what we do, we're not in conversation. We're forcing our view on them. And so it's, you know, I don't know what's good for the people around me who are suffering. I mean, in some ways, I have a general idea. Their relationship to their mind is a big part of it. <laughs> but how, what they do to actually, um, how that works out for them, how they start to loosen and soften that hard relationship to their mind, that I don't know how they're going to do it. I don't know what's going to work for them in particular. So, so the only thing that I, you know, the only thing that I know is that if we do this work and we do it with the other people who are drawn to this work in the way we're doing it, it grows. It ripples out and it grows. And it is, um, does it satisfy the part of us that wants to flip the switch and fix it tomorrow? No, but that has never worked. That has never worked. In the cases where that's happened, violence has ensued. In the most beautifully heartful revolutions that had all the best intentions. It got rough. <laughs> so one thing is, I actually don't think it's all that bad in my experience, my life is a long history of failing. Again and again and again and again. And that is great. Because otherwise, how am I going to learn anything? I'm not going to learn if I don't actively fail. I'm just not going to learn. So if we want to learn, we have to be okay with failing again and again and again. So there's that piece. Um, I don't know what you mean by keeping the house clean, but um, 
if you're talking about this kind of work, there's no clean house. The house is not clean. The house is full of all kinds of stuff. So, um, when we fail, this sounds simpler than it is, but I don't know any other way. When we fail, we go back and admit it. We confess we failed. We didn't live up to what, we, what our intention was. We wish we would have done better. Can we try to have the conversation again? And it may take a while for all the stuff that got stirred up to be able to do that. Now, some, a lot, like you said, a lot of it's going to be on the other person's side, too. So you have to gauge whether you feel that they're able to have to return to that conversation and what the risk is in that. And oh, there's a lot of things to consider. It's not, we're not martyrs. But, um, but for ourselves, I think it's really important to say, can I let it settle down? Can I confess to myself? It's usually we're the ones who don't want to admit to ourselves that we made a mess of that. And so can we confess to ourselves that that's the case and then go back and try again? Most of this is trying again, trying again, trying again, trying again. It's not going to end. The easiest thing about this practice, or this practice gets a whole lot easier when we realize we are not going to get to the glistening plateau of perfect life. It does not exist where we get it right all the time. The quicker we really take that in all the way through, the easier it is to say, okay, my job in life is to keep showing up. It's not any more spectacular than that. Okay. That's a good way to end. <laughs> May our intentions... Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.